Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Tonight, we meet a physicist who's made it her mission in life to shine a bright light on the many underreported accomplishments of women scientists by researching and writing more than 1,700 Wikipedia bios that women and minority scientists never got their due. A former RCMP fraud investigator explains why we're seeing fraud cases and losses spike in Canada, up more than 100% in 2021, why so little of that money is ever recovered, and what needs to be done to turn the tables. With inflation, rising interest rates, talk of a recession, we look at just how much Canadians plan to cut back on spending this holiday season. But first, multiple investigations are underway after an RCMP officer in the Vancouver suburb of Burnaby was stabbed and killed in the line of duty today. 31-year-old Constable Shailen Yang was part of the outreach team on mental health and homelessness with Burnaby RCMP was assisting a city worker when she was attacked. We find out what we know about the circumstances surrounding the tragedy and what we don't, and more about the officer who lost her life. It's been a tragic day here in British Columbia. We begin tonight in the Vancouver suburb of Burnaby, where several investigations are underway after an RCMP officer was killed in the line of duty today, the third Canadian police officer to die in the line of duty in just a week. 31-year-old RCMP Constable Tsu Sin, or Shailin Yang, of Burnaby RCMP, was helping a City of Burnaby Park employee at the site of a homeless campsite when she was stabbed to death. Police say she was called there as part of her work with the outreach team on mental health and homelessness. Here's the commanding officer of the RCMP in British Columbia, Dwayne McDonald. It was with deep and profound sadness that I must advise the public today of the homicide of Burnaby Constable Shailin Yang that occurred this morning in the line of duty. This is an extremely difficult and tragic day for the BCRCMP and the members of Burnaby Detachment. Constable Yang lived in Richmond and she was an active volunteer. She started her career volunteering part-time in the city of Richmond and later full-time in that city. In 2019, she became a police officer in her depot in June of that same year. She graduated in December as a member of Troop 8 and was posted to Burnaby Detachment. She was a loving wife a sister, and a daughter. The head of the British Columbia RCMP there, Dwayne McDonald, Constable Yang was 31. BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth earlier today expressed, expressed his condolences on behalf of the province. Every day we ask thousands of men and women in uniform in this province to do their duty, keeping our community safe, keeping the public safe, knowing full well that it's an extremely dangerous job. This is the worst news that anyone wants to hear. But right now, my heart goes out to the, to the family, and the friends, and the officers in the police departments, Burnaby, and across this province, every day, put their life on the line to keep all of us in our communities safe. That was BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. This tragedy happens just a week after two police officers with Ontario South Simcoe Police Service were shot and killed while responding to reports of a domestic disturbance in the community of Innisfil, north of Toronto. The suspect in that case was shot and killed by another officer on the scene. Funerals will be held for those officers on Thursday. The suspect in this latest case was also shot and is in hospital tonight. Well, joining me with the latest is Global BC anchor and reporter Camille Karamali. Uh, Camille, thank you so much for your time tonight. Ben, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Um, we learnt more in a press conference that Burnaby RCMP and others held not that long ago. Do we have a better idea of how this unfolded? 
a little bit of an idea. I mean, we are uh, trying to piece it together ourselves, uh, all of us out here in the field reporting, because the police uh, are only going to say so much in the early hours of this investigation as they normally do. But speaking with neighbors and residents in the area. I mean, mind you, this park is uh, just surrounded by several, several townhomes, almost uh, 360 degrees of townhomes, two, three-story homes. And so speaking to people, um, they say that uh, this, uh, this tent had been at this park called Broadview Park. It's just it, not even the park that you probably imagine, Ben. It's it's a small patch of grass is how I would imagine it behind the uh, Burnaby School Board, Board of Education headquarters. Just right, the tent itself is actually just right behind the parking lot itself. And as I mentioned, surrounded by homes. Um, uh, people say that, uh, you know, this person has been camping there uh, with his lone orange tent for weeks, some said months, they've seen that tent there. And so um, they don't know the individual, but didn't seem mentally well. And so, as you may know, uh, we know that Constable Yang is part of the mental health and outreach team. And she was um, assisting bylaw in possibly checking in on that individual. It was a call. They went there at around 11.05 Pacific time. And uh, people we spoke to did not see what transpired, but uh, they knew of the tent, and they, and a couple of people did tell us they heard gunshots. So we know that Constable Yang was fatally stabbed. Uh, what remains to be seen or understood is what transpired prior to that altercation happening that ended up in the tragic and heartbreaking death of Constable Yang and why those, uh, why and who fired those shots that were heard. We do know the Independent Investigations Office is also uh, investigating a police-involved shooting that also transpired in relation to this fatal stabbing. So that should say something uh, once uh, the results come in from the IIO. Right. Listeners will, uh, who don't know that is BC's police watchdog. Um, do we know under, I, I, we're listening to the police press conference today, they again uh, talked about how quickly this happened. Uh, is that your understanding as well, that this all transpired very fast? Absolutely. Um, from what we understand, it was uh, just uh, within minutes um, from what police have said, um, so it, it could have just been a very quick altercation. Uh, maybe there was a misunderstanding. I mean, it's all speculation at this point because uh, nobody we spoke to got a good look at what happened. Um, I will say the, the Board of Education headquarters, we started speaking to people as they were leaving. And this tent is right almost nestled up to their parking lot. So they were uh, they actually told me to not to not to talk to anybody and stop asking questions. Um, so we don't know what they saw or what they were involved in, if at all, because there was a call made and um, Constable Yang and a bylaw officer did respond to a call. So who made that call and what happened and what transpired, who was involved, uh, all questions that need to be answered. And, you know, it it is still only been, um, let's see, about eight hours since this incident took place. So it's still very, very early. What do we know about uh, Constable Yang? I realize um, she's 31, relatively new to the force, but not a rookie. No, not at all. Um, Well, she's three years into her job, and uh, she was described as kind and passionate. You heard in that very emotional clip, uh, members of the Burnaby RCMP 
um, and leaders of, of the police forces in, in the area were speaking very highly of her with tears in their eyes. Um, we know she's been described as kind and compassionate, uh, as you mentioned, a wife, sister, and daughter. And, uh, you know, Burnaby RCMP described her as somebody who showed that compassion in her job when she did deal with mental health calls. Um, she did it for a reason, because she cared about the people who she wanted to help, who were suffering from mental health issues. Um, so uh, according to police, you know, she did, she was very passionate about her job and, and it tried to um, help as many people as she could in her early years. So, um, you know, it's just a tragic incident that took place that led to her death. Um, still trying to learn a bit about her, but we know she has family that are unfortunately grieving tonight and heartbroken. Yeah, the police were discussing the fact that she um, grew up nearby in another suburb called Richmond, which mm-hmm. isn't too, too far from where Burnaby is. Um, what happens now, Camille? I mean, I know there are many investigations underway. You mentioned the police watchdogs investigation, but there's a separate investigation into the incident as well, I believe. Absolutely. And, you know, we saw Vancouver police here. We saw Burnaby RCMP here. I mean, there are multiple services here uh, that are um, that have blocked off a large stretch. I mean, we're talking blocks closed off to the public. Um, the only way we were able to see the tent was one of the residents led us into their town home, and we could see from the top balcony. But there's this one lone tent sitting there where there was um, obviously uh, forensics, gloves, and equipment. Um, you know, th- there was obviously an attempt to resuscitate the victim. We know that. Um, uh, she, uh, Constable Yang, died in hospital, Vancouver General Hospital. We know that the suspect is in custody. He suffered injuries as well, and he is in hospital in a serious condition. So he's expected to survive. And so I'm sure a big part of that investigation is to try and talk to this person, try and understand what happened. Um, but uh, but that will obviously be a big focal point as we move forward and try to learn exactly what transpired and what led to what was supposed to be a pretty routine mental health call um, turned into something so deadly. I also will say this, Ben, I mean, we've been here since uh, noon, so we got to see uh, a lot of the activity that took place shortly after the incident. And I'll tell you, you can see it on all the police officers' faces, the the grief um, was palpable, just the sadness in their eyes as they were trying to do the very daunting task of being professional, work on that investigation, but also doing it with very, very heavy hearts as they lost one of their own. Yeah, I mean, we had this conversation last week with Dave Perry, who's a retired Toronto police officer after the death of the two uh, police officers in Innisfil on, a, again, what was considered to be a relatively routine call. And mm-hmm. he pointed out that you just, in these situations, you just never know. And it's sometimes the ones that seem the most routine that can turn the quickest and you're caught off. And it's, and, you know, I know there'll be lots of investigation, obviously a lot of it investigating into what happened here. Uh, for listeners to understand, Burnaby RCMP is a huge detachment. This is a very large police force. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a police force that has, um, that, that has a lot of uh, police officers, a lot of team members. Uh, I mean, the response alone for this was we saw, um, I, I would guess, uh, well over 40 vehicles respond, as well as dozens of police officers. So uh, it, it, it is a pretty um, a big uh, a, a service itself. And, uh, you know, the Burnaby RCMP, um, they, they have several branches like 
the, men- the mental health and outreach program they can, uh, just because they there are some uh, encampments that require that more sensitive touch and response. Um, so, you know, uh, three years in, um, Constable Yang um, went through... Um, from speaking with other police officers as part of Burnaby RCMP, it's a pretty rigorous process to get on that team. You know, they're they're well trained. They're learned. They have learned to respond, and there's they're no strangers to dealing with mental health calls here. Burnaby being as big as it is. Speaking of masters, you're going to enjoy this next interview, this next story today. Just as a preface, as October 18th is Persons Day in this country. It is the anniversary of when the historic decision to include women in the legal definition of persons was handed down by Canada's highest court of appeal that gave women the right to be appointed to the Senate and paved the way for women's increased participation in public and political life. Fast forward about a century and a recognition of the incredible contributions women and minority women have made, especially in traditionally male-dominated fields like science, tech, engineering, and math, has too often gone unnoticed, underreported, or at least unappreciated. But one physicist in Britain has worked for years to change that. Jess Wade has written more than 1,700 entries, bios, about long-ignored female scientists for the online encyclopedia Wikipedia. Her work has had a big enough impact that she was awarded the British Empire Medal for Service to Gender Diversity in Science back in 2019. She, too, of course, is a scientist. And Jess Wade, a physicist in the Blackett Laboratory at Imperial College London, Blackett Laboratory, rather, at the Imperial College in London, and a prolific and popular contributor to our better understanding of women in science via Wikipedia, joins me now. Jess, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And I apologize for any background noise. I'm (laughs) actually in the lab at the moment, so I have good excuses. You're a busy professional, of course, as always. Um, tell me a bit about what you do, because you, you're doing some really interesting work these days that um, on some stuff that um, that sounds very very topical. Yeah, I work on new materials for optoelectronics devices, so devices that emit or absorb light, so things like LED displays or solar panels. But at the moment, I'm particularly interested in trying to control the chirality of those materials, so the way that they curve to try yeah. and control their quantum properties. Where would we see those used? I mean, if you were to, um, where, where, where might we see your work? Sure. Kind of long term, we're, we're interested in making new kinds of devices for things like sensors or maybe bioimaging systems using these materials that have extraordinary precision and sensitivity. Now, your background, your parents are both on the on the medical side of things, but you come from a family of, where there was a lot of science around you. Yeah, and I think that's kind of really critical in shaping how young people see themselves as being able to become scientists or engineers. You know, my parents were both doctors, but I had absolutely sensational physics and chemistry teachers. And we kind of had that science excitement in my house growing up. You know, we discussed it at dinner. We watched television programs about science. And I think we kind of forget that now, how important that is in shaping who becomes a scientist. It must have also um, had an impact on you when you started to look around at what other people in your shoes who didn't have the same uh, background might might not have in terms of encouragement or at least role models to look up to. Yeah, it completely did. It really, you know, when I got to university and I realized that, you know, you look around you when you're studying a subject like physics or engineering and you see that actually the majority of people are men and the majority of those actually are white men and they're pretty much all quite privileged white men. 
And then you start to think about how lucky you had been to be supported to get to that position, to have that opportunity. And I guess that kind of luck and that realization that I had this huge privilege really inspired me to want to go and and to kind kind of try and give that to everyone else. Yeah. Tell me about when you began the Wikipedia project. Uh, How did it start? Yeah, I actually started, um, well, I started working on kind of anything related to diversity and representation. Probably during my undergrad and PhD, I realized that I had this immense luck and this immense privilege, and I wanted to take that magic and that excitement and that opportunity to others. And really, then I was kind of going to high schools and speaking about science and, you know, trying to fit into a school day and tell everyone I cared about the materials I was working on or what kind of places we had in our lab. But then it became something kind of much more than that. And I thought, actually, you know, I'm limited in the number of kids I can reach if I'm just going into a classroom or doing a science club at Imperial on the weekend. How about I could take it further? And, and I think the Internet gives us this kind of huge power to do that. So I really got into kind of thinking about how we weave the stories of scientists from historically marginalized groups into our teaching and our training and the way that we talk about who does science and why science is done. So I was kind of, you know, going out, giving these talks, telling them about all of these awesome women scientists. And then I thought I need to tell this on a bigger platform. And and then I landed on Wikipedia, which is pretty much the biggest storytelling platform there is. It's a remark. I mean, Wikipedia is a remarkable tool because it is in some ways very democratic, although we will talk about this. It isn't as democratic as one might imagine at some points. Where did you start to find the research? I mean, to look up the people you were going to profile, uh, what did you try to focus on and, and, and how did you come up with the stories themselves? Because it is hard to find a lot written sometimes about people who are underrepresented, clearly. Yeah, I mean, the the critical thing to say is that women and and people of colour are very underrepresented in the biographies of Wikipedia, not because they're not brilliant and not because they're not outstanding, but because no one's taken the time to write those pages. So actually pulling together the resources and finding their stories and and putting it all into kind of a coherent science narrative isn't, isn't that hard. It's just kind of like one of those things, you know, I'm trained as a scientist to do a literature review, so to assess a topic quite quickly. And in doing that, you have a whole bunch of sources. You may have, you know, I'm sure your listeners may be familiar with opening an internet browser and having a whole bunch of tabs open. But my tabs are just kind of chronicling a person's life. <laughs> um, um, so I started very much um, focused on things I knew I could write about easily. So things like physics and chemistry. And then I kind of realized very quickly if I was going to write about women physicists in the UK, I was really limited to to, to again, incredibly white dominated um, physics culture we have here. So I started looking further afield, you know, internationally, different subjects, different backgrounds, different disciplines, you know, not contemporary, but also historical. And, and really, on the one hand, it's this big service, you know, and you're writing up these biographies and that's it's great to get these women celebrated and shouted about and used in textbooks and, you know, school presentations. But on the other hand, I have this extraordinary opportunity every night to sit down and learn about a whole new thing or a whole new university or a whole new kind of time in history. And and I find that really exciting. So I'm kind of buzzing when I'm writing them as well as when I'm seeing those people be honoured. Yeah, the, the passion is clear. I mean, I think that's what makes them so engaging is that if you have to, you have to, if it was just an exercise in trying to write these bios in volume, I think it would probably have landed differently. But the idea that you've put a lot of time and passion into telling the stories of, of, uh, of different science, of different scientists who've been un- under recognized in the past is, is in of itself fascinating. Tell me about some of the ones that really 
lit it up for you uh, to use a term that probably isn't very scientific i mean the yeah the the biggest page for me just on how much it shaped how i think about representation but also how much we can change things with narrative is an engineer called gladys west she's actually a mathematician and she was she was born in 1930 in virginia she she studied maths at a historically black college and university and then she went off and became a school teacher for math. So she was teaching in a high school. And then she ended up working for the U.S. government on the early calculations for GPS. And there were loads of kind of parts of her story, which were, you know, the first woman to be in this department, one of very few African-Americans to be in this department, you know, huge, huge barriers that she completely overcame. And when I started to put together this page at kind of the beginning of 2018, there's, there was scant information about her online. You know, it really took a lot of searching and then it was built on by other incredible Wikipedia contributors who expanded it and it grew and it was translated into all of these different languages. And, you know, all of these exciting things are happening. And then a few months after I put the page up, the BBC put her into their top 100 women in the world. So suddenly everyone everyone is clicking on this Wikipedia page. And because Wikipedia is brilliant, you can track all of the numbers. So you could see how many page views this is getting an hour. And then a few months later, um, she was she was inducted into the US Air Force Hall of Fame. So suddenly we had all these incredible photographs of her we could use online. Then in 2020, you know, the year of sadness in so many ways, The Guardian, our big national newspaper in the UK, did a huge profile on Gladys West. And then actually last last year, 2021, the Royal Academy of Engineering, the big, you know, prestigious engineering institute in the UK, awarded Gladys West the Prince Philip Medal and Prize. And she's the first woman in the history of the award. And, and she's a, um, you know, a 90-year-old African-American mathematician from Virginia. I think it's just the most perfect kind of testament to how these brilliant people are there. We just need the world to celebrate them more. It is. I mean, I, I, it, it must have been what to come full circle for you too, having sort of started to tell that story. And have you spoken to her? I managed to have a Zoom with her because I was talking about her to some organization and they said, oh yeah, let's have a Zoom. And then uh, lo and behold, it was a Zoom with Gladys West. It was honestly like, you know, it was like meeting royalty for me. You must have been starstruck. Yeah. I I was completely starstruck and I was kind of buzzing and I had to go and speak to my mom and be like, I don't know what I'm going to say or do. (laughs) You've now written, is it it 1600 or is it more now Wikipedia entries? Gladys West obviously being one of them. Yeah, I've written about 1,750. And where do you continue to find the inspiration for them? I, I mean, you must be getting suggestions now, I would assume. Well, yeah. yeah <laughs> in the past few days, in the past few days, especially, I've had a lot of people emailing me, including a lot of men emailing me saying, I'll pay you to make my Wikipedia page, which is the complete opposite of what you're supposed to do. Um, so maybe if anyone's listening, don't get that idea. How is it for you balancing both your career as a scientist and being this voice in many ways, this person who's become a voice? for other scientists past and present? Oh, I mean, so many people do it so much better than me. I think, I mean, I just try, you know, I, I get such a kick out of doing science and doing experiments and being around students. I work at Imperial College in London and it's, you know, one of these fantastic hubs of science and technology and everyone I work with is so creative and inspired and the students are so brilliant that it's kind of never a dull moment when you're on campus. So when I'm on campus, I just try and squeeze in as much interaction with students and also as much experiments as I can and then and then when I'm off campus I'm, I'm trying to well either analyze data or, or progressively make science a better place both parts of it are so critical for me and I think I think the scientific community is moving in the same way that 
for, for subjects like physics and chemistry and engineering to be as brilliant as they could be, we truly, truly need contributions from everyone in the world for us to serve those societies. Um, tell me, there's been some, not controversy, but there's been a, there was pushback, right, over time. Where does that come from? I think kind of historically, Wikipedia has been mainly contributed to by a particular demographic of people. You know, it was born at the beginning of the internet. You had phenomenal people like Jimmy Wales kind of lightening the world with this opportunity to have a democratized open source platform for knowledge sharing. I mean, it, it, could you imagine something as formidable? And I really, I truly think that it was the ingenuity of it is when it began, you know, at the beginning of the internet, when there was that trust, when people were willing to give up their time to make something that was really wonderful without getting a huge amount of credit for what they were doing. And so an awful lot of Wikipedia kind of senior administrators and editors are from that time and at that time, the majority of people on the internet were men, and they were mainly on the Northern Hemisphere. Actually, there was a huge, a huge overrepresentation of North America. And as a result, they write pages about kind of things they're interested in. And that's, you know, battleships and, and football teams and obscure villages. And, yes. and those pages are pretty brilliant on Wikipedia. Unfortunately, and um, kind of historically, women minorities really underrepresented and pages about you know the global south and and truly it's it's not because anyone's evil or has bad intentions it's because either their contributions were overlooked or actually it's really hard to find the references to pull together that list of citations because these people don't get the credit they're due so if they're not written about in newspapers or given major awards or inducted into big societies it's really hard to put together a biography that's built on those secondary sources. You know, Wikipedia isn't a primary site. I can't go on there and just write a story. I need no. to back everything up with a citation. So, yeah, at first, my kind of over-enthusiasm for telling these stories definitely um, rustled a few feathers. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think, I think now I've learned how to tell them better. So I've learned how to use a few fewer adjectives when I'm describing absolutely incredible people. But also, I think that, you know, the community is changing, like with every other aspect of society, that as people start to, to recognize the value of um, diversity, you start to get a lot more people and a lot, the kind of rules shift a bit. And I guess Gladys West would be a perfect example of that. Jess Wade, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I asked you before the break to let me know about fraud, because it turns out that fraud, declared cases of fraud in this country, are jumping. They're way up. Let me know, 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. How often do you feel like people try to defraud you? I feel like I probably get maybe something along the lines of 10 to 15 things a week that are probably fishing expeditions for fraud, whether it be alarms about things I owe or any number of things, you know, your UPS package hasn't been delivered, check your Netflix account here, all those things where you're sort of being lured into trying to give up personal information. Um, and you have to be diligent because oftentimes you kind of, you know, your life is moving by fast. You read them quickly. Always check the email address, always check the phone number, see if they're legit. You know, um, have a quick look at the resources out there that are available from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, for instance, about what uh, you need to do to protect yourself. Um, we also know that only a small fraction of fraud cases and losses are actually reported to police, just 5 to 10%. With that, Canadians declared close to $400 million in losses 
to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre in 2021. That's a 130% increase over the previous year, and it is a record for this country. To make matters worse, money lost to fraud is usually gone for good. Only 1% of that nearly $400 billion was recovered. So given how much fraud costs all of us, given that we're in a time where most of us are having to tighten our belts because of the high costs of everything, why is it more being done to fight fraud? One retired RCMP fraud officer is calling for an overhaul of how authorities combat the crime. And John Meacher, a former RCMP fraud investigator, joins me now. Thank you for your time tonight. Happy to be here. Um, I would know that someone in your position would not use a term like off the charts uh, easily, but that's how you've described what's happening with fraud in this country. Uh, How much of a change have we seen of late? Okay, so last year, and the stats I'm referring come from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, Mm-hmm. And they are the in the best play position to tell us, the, provide us a clear indication of what's going on in the fraud world. Last year, and when I say off the charts, it was almost $400 million, uh, that they had reported at the Anti-Fraud Centre. And that's been going up and up and up year after year. Going back 10 years ago, it would have been a fraction of that. But the thing that makes... 400 million, even more disturbing, is that according to the best estimates from the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, that number, 400 million, only represents less than 5% of the actual frauds reported to them. So we are looking at a situation in Canada, which is a multi-billion dollar fraud industry. So yes, it is a problem. And $400 million in losses, as you mentioned, so few of these fraud cases are actually reported. Uh, What's behind it? I mean, I know just personally, uh, with just on my own cell phone number, I get, you know, maybe 15, 20 fishing expeditions a week. Um, What's going on out there that that could account for this incredible growth in the amount of uh, fraud going on? Okay. Well, some people believe it may be pandemic related because then you'd have more people at home more accessible to the phone so on and so forth um that might be one reason but i also believe that criminal organizations around the world and within canada are realizing that fraud is incredibly profitable especially in canada where it's low risk high reward and when we look at how they do it, and you gave a perfect example, you're getting so many attempts on your own phone. It costs the fraudsters almost next to nothing uh, to do that sort of engagement. And it's a numbers game. The more times they send out their message, their email, make their phone call, the greater the chance they will find that vulnerable person who will fall for that scam. And when I mention vulnerable people, I want to make this clear that there's three technically four different groups of vulnerable people. One, at the top of the list are seniors. Then following that, we have newcomers, which includes refugees, as well as our intellectually challenged communities. But the fourth group, which actually surprises a lot of people, can include just about anybody else given the right set of circumstances. And personally, I've dealt with victims of fraud who cover the top three groups, but I also have dealt with victims who come from backgrounds such as being lawyers, politicians, police officers, accountants, 
retired judges, and maybe shockingly enough, bankers and ex-bankers. So when we think about who could be vulnerable, it basically represents everybody. Uh, you, I mean, I guess in this sense, there is a lot of fish in the sea and uh, fraudsters have all the time in the world and, and all the different methods they can come up with to try to lure them into. And it just takes one, right? It, it, you don't need to be successful uh, 100% of the time. You need to be successful maybe uh, a fraction of a percentage of the time. You're still making money. Yes, absolutely. And I've dealt with fraudsters before, some of who I would call like the McDonald's, the fraudsters. No offense to McDonald's, but it's just their business model. Basically, they had a lower uh, end of what they want to get from the victims. It would often fall in the range of like 2,500 or so. But then through your, what I call your high-end fraudsters, and this is not a compliment towards the fraudsters, just that they crafted their particular message to an audience that were able to afford more. And I dealt with victims, online frauds, where victims have lost million up to $5 million. So again, just about anybody can fall for a fraud given the right circumstances. I know that we talk a lot about the cyber aspect of this, but you mentioned it earlier, uh, the good old fashioned telephone is still a tool that fraudsters use quite effectively. Yes. And although based on dollar numbers lost, the telephone isn't uh, connected to the highest dollar losses. But at the same time, and we can't discount the power of the phone, at the same time, the phone is still the preferred method of solicitation for fraudsters targeting Canadians. We also know from the same statistics that very little of what is lost is ever recovered. Absolutely. And that losses can vary from a couple hundred dollars up to millions. And depending on the person's financial status, some people can recover, but there's most people can't. And can you imagine a a senior citizen or somebody approaching their retirement years? And we saw this again and again with the CRA scam. The fraudsters would keep coming back to the victim again, again, and again. And I'm aware of several victims who end up depleting their RRSP accounts just to hand over, in some cases, a hundred to $200,000 over to the fraudsters. So now we have a senior person who was relying on that, on the savings, is now gone. And what are they going to do? And the psychology of this, I'm sure you understand as well. I suspect that once someone has fallen victim to something, it's very hard to convince them to stop. Uh, harder than you would imagine. Yes. And some frauds are easier to convince. Like with the CRA scam, for instance, we would have often inter- interaction with victims or potential victims. And it'd be relatively straightforward to put them straight if we were able to engage them soon enough. But with scams like investment scams, where people just become one of my former uh, colleagues used to call them the true believers. Once they started believing that they were going to get that massive payoff at the end of the day, it was sometimes next to impossible to convince them until finally, two years later, they didn't see their promised returns coming in. But the most challenging group out there as far as victims are people who fall for romance scams. Right. I've dealt with victims. One particular lady, she was like 81 years old. I could tell you this story in great detail if you want, but she came up here from the States 
American authorities tried to engage her. She came up to Canada to mule $26,000 over to the fraudsters in Canada, supposedly to get to her pretend boyfriend in Germany. And my interaction with her, she was totally groomed and brainwashed by the fraudsters that no matter what I said to her, I had no luck whatsoever convincing her that she was actually dealing with bad people. Uh, and the thing that makes that even more devastating is at some point or another, uh, she's going to get to the point where she's sold all of her assets because she already has sold her $400,000 home. At some point, she's going to throw away all of her assets and she's going to wake up one day. She's going to be broke with a broken heart and the emotional impact on victims, unfortunately, can lead to depression, attempts of suicide and people actually taking their lives. And unfortunately, with romance scams, that seems to be, I'm not going to call it a trend, but it happens a whole lot more often than I'd ever like to see. John, you've mentioned this, you've been in front of committees talking about this. What needs to be done to at least try to stem the tide of this? Because it feels like if it's growing exponentially, clearly, authorities just aren't doing it up to stop it. I agree 100%. And when I was in front of the House of Commons Committee, I, I actually stated that, and, and because I come from the RCMP, and, and let me make this clear, I loved my time in the RCMP. I had nothing but the greatest respect for the people who were doing the investigations, but there's a disconnect between those who are doing the work and those who are actually controlling the purse strings, uh, i.e. high management in Ottawa. I don't see that management of the RCMP or by extension, the federal government sees fraud or fraud awareness as a priority. And unfortunately, until we wrap our head around that, we're going to continue to see these losses. But if I had the ear of a fraud sire, which we don't have, I would say there's at least four different approaches that we have to be relentless with, starting with criminal investigations, even though at some point, and, and I can say this as a former fraud investigator, going to court in Canada regarding fraud is almost pointless, except we have to do those investigations. We have to try to get convictions if for no other reason, even if the bad people don't go to jail, they should still have that conviction because that conviction can impact on what they want to do further on in life, whether it's getting certain jobs or even crossing certain borders. And something that is rarely ever talked about, I know that when I was in the RCMP, there were two things you didn't do. You didn't talk ill of the government and you didn't talk ill of the courts. But the courts were a constant frustration for me. Because I'll give you one quick little example. My first um, online scam that I was involved in, it revolved around a refugee who came to Canada trying to find safe harbor. And he fell for a scam. Over $40,000 later, we actually end up catching one of the guys. It, it was a conspiracy, so there were multiple different people involved in the fraud. But we caught one of them. So for a $40,000-plus scam, the guy's penalty, 200 hours community service. And tell me in what world that makes sense. So when we talk about what should we should be doing, one thing that we should be doing is having greater transparency as far as outcome of courts. And I would like to see a public, easily accessible public database that would allow anybody, be it broadcasters, journalists, whatever, or, or, or average citizens, able to go on there and see what sentences are being given fraudsters 
And more importantly, how much that sentence is actually applied. And I use that particular terminology, separating between the sentence given versus what is actually served, because one of the most egregious examples happened out in Alberta a couple of years ago, where you had two guys, two very bad people, they were running one of the Canada's, if not Canada's largest Ponzi scheme. And their take on that alone was somewhere between 100 to $400 million. That's completely off the charts. And those particular scams aren't reported to the Canadian Fraud Center because it's not online or phone related. But how much you, one would think those two guys, if they pulled in even a hundred million, I, I hope I said a hundred million, it's a hundred million to 400 million. So if those guys don't go to jail for an extended period of time in regarding to fraud, who will? Anyway, they were given a sentence of 12 years, but this is Canada. They actually got out about two years. They were out in parole at roughly two years, which in my mind, that makes no sense, and it doesn't show any respect to the justice system, nor to the victims. If you're out there now, and you're speaking to people who may, may be vulnerable to this, what are the, some of the very key words of advice you could give them in a few minutes about how to better protect themselves these days? Be a doubting Thomas. If anybody sends you an email uh, or a message, social media message, or a phone call, and they're asking for either money or your personal information, because a lot of the scams rely on getting information to execute an identity fraud, be very doubtful. If you are a part of a, a community where you're maybe overly trusting, have an agreement with a friend, and you're going to say, if, any, if I'm ever going to give somebody money, I'm going to give you a call first before I do, just to have that separation between the initial call and the opportunity provided to the fraudster. And it can also go to as simple things as other people who might be listening to this. Everybody within their community, within their circle of friends or family will generally have vulnerable people, whether it's seniors, newcomers, what have you. It's extremely important to have personalized fraud chats around the dinner table. Uh, like, and I drive my friends and family nuts because I'll, I'll be bringing this up with total strangers. Anytime we have somebody over for dinner, I'll be bringing this topic up, but I'm doing my part because I know that grassroots engagement can be beneficial, but that type of engagement has to be encouraged at a, a much higher level beyond my particular soapbox. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, think what we, information is power, right? And, and often these things happen in a vacuum. And, and I could see why, you know, even just getting this, the, the fishing expeditions that I receive, you know, they are calls to action. They do play on your emotions. They are very crafty in their simplicity. And I can imagine that once you've fallen victim to one, it's very hard to figure out, you know, it's, they set off an alarm bell in you and you react to that. Yes. And one thing I, I missed on, so I, I said, uh, a, a huge red flag is anytime somebody's asking for money or your personal information. But there are also frauds out there where the ask for money doesn't happen right away. I've dealt with investment scams where the actual ask for money didn't come until months after the initial engagement, at which point the victim has already psychologically bought into the promise of becoming rich, even without offering, putting any money forward. And it also speaks to uh, the, the evilness of the romance scams. So they'll ensure that they've established the relationship with the victim. And then it'll be at some point later, the ask for money will flow. 
John Meacher, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your advice. It is certainly an important topic. Hopefully we can uh, all work together to bring some of those numbers down. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, rising prices, inflation, talk of a recession, interest rates, the war in Ukraine, the pandemic, you can't blame Canadians for looking to the future now with a bit of apprehension. That's having an impact on holiday spending plans, according to a new report out today from Deloitte Canada. Overall, we plan to spend 17% less this year than we did in 2021, uh, with the high cost of everyday stuff such as food and gas, as well as inflation worries, driving that drop. The good news is we want to spend more time together. There's nothing more valuable than that. Joining me more with more on this is Marty Weintraub. He's a partner and national retail leader at Deloitte. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. I guess if you follow the news, as we do each and every day, it's not surprising to find out that Canadians are feeling a little pessimistic heading into this holiday season. Uh, but how pessimistic are they? Well, uh, unfortunately, more pessimistic than we've seen in a long time. And probably to your point, not a surprise given what's going on with food prices, inflation in general, the economic outlook and personal financial situation. For all those reasons, Canadians are telling us that they're going to spend about 17% less this year than prior year. When I looked at your survey, what was interesting is that it comes off a 2020 or your 2021 survey where people were feeling particularly optimistic uh, after a few very difficult years. Yeah, you're right. I mean, so this year, the the total spent for holiday across the country would be about $1,520. Last year, that was 1841 So there's your, your 17%. What was interesting about 2021 is it was lapping 2020, which was the first shopping holiday season of the pandemic where we were down quite a bit to, to around 1400 So what you saw in 2021 was what I call some revenge shopping that didn't happen in 2020. So that's why to, uh, you know, you may have heard me in the past talk about roller coaster. We've been on a roller coaster for three or four years because of all these factors. Where are we going to see the impact of this? I think you've already mentioned high food prices, uh, discretionary spending. People are certainly saving for a rainy day or a snowy day at this point. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting, there's, and there's some nuance uh, to the story, Ben. So like overall shopping will be down 17%. Some of the categories that are going to be disproportionately negatively impacted, interestingly, are two categories, one that we call non-gift giving for clothing and non-gift giving for electronics. So what we see with when we trap holiday spending and we ask Canadians how much they're going to spend, it's not just on gifts. Canadians actually spend for themselves as well as for their for their gifts. And, and I think that's where the biggest, you know, chunk is going to come out of the wallet um, in terms of less to be spent because we're going to divert as much as we can to buying gifts in a year. That's just going to be tough. Right. So not that usual one for one for family, one for me. Electronic exactly. spending. Yeah, I get it. that. Where So the concerns really, and these aren't again, um, surprising, but concerns over inflation have really become prominent and, uh, and just the economy in general. Absolutely. I mean, uh, almost half the Canadians are worried about their economic outlook, just their personal household financial situation. Uh, you know, also almost half the Canadians are also worried about the general economy. Um, and, you know, we've got we got announcements coming at us probably pretty soon from the Bank of Canada where, you know, it wouldn't be a shock to see interest rates possibly rising again. I don't have a crystal ball, don't know. But if that were to be the case, that would not help our case. Travel was one of those things we talked about a lot over the summer because of all the chaos at airports and so on, that people were really eager to travel again. You found that because of all that's happened in the past few months, that in fact, travel spending will also be down over the holidays. 
Yes, that's that's absolutely true. And again, that's part of that holiday spend because that's part of gift giving, whether you're taking yourself, your family, or who, or who not uh, on a vacation. That is actually going to be one of the, again, per the survey, one of the categories of spend that's going to experience the biggest drop. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, we've seen some pretty competitive airfares through the fall of 2022 uh, versus what we saw last spring, for example, where fares were quite high. So when you mix all that together, uh, we're going to have an interesting holiday travel season as well. Yeah. And one of the things that pops out right away when looking at where the impact may be is that a lot of businesses were sort of banking on a recovery. We're banking on spending coming back to something like normal. Uh, but your survey is showing that that it might not, that in fact, Canadians are going to be very, very conservative with their spending. Um, what will that mean in terms of what they're looking to buy? So I guess that the, the simple answer to the question would be is buy what they need versus buy what they want or, you know, don't need right so i guess it's back to that discretionary non-discretionary thinking and you know when budgets are trimmed and there's less and the funny part i'll say maybe this is a, a good way to introduce this point you know canadians have saved a lot of money ben in the last couple of years to the tune of about 350 or 360 billion dollars which by the way is about 10 years worth of historical savings so Interesting nuance to the story is that some people actually do have some money, whether it's in bank accounts saved up or in mattresses. It's do they feel comfortable spending it with all this noise going on around them? So in some cases, I don't have the money to spend. In some cases, I have it, but I don't want to spend it. Brand loyalty was interesting here too, because you found that when when not only are they going to are we going to spend a bit less, but we're also going to spend a bit differently too. We're really looking for deals. We're really looking to make sure we're stretching our dollars as far as we possibly can. Yeah, you know, to stretch their budget, uh, Canadians also told us in the survey that if their preferred brand is too expensive, you know, 72% of Canadians will shift their dollars to a different brand or to a different retailer. And, you know, again, about 69% are going to be seeking deals. So it gets back to that stretching of the dollar. And that could mean uh, giving up your favorite brand for something a little bit more achievable. Um, one of the things I noticed, too, is that across the board, spending will be down a bit on gift cards, on gifts, but also on charitable charitable donations as well, which is obviously always a concern. It is. In fact, this is one of the very first years where we'll see a double-digit dip in charitable giving. And in fact, it's funny, even in the previous couple of years that we've had the pandemic in front of us, and, and obviously some people were not working and, and living off of you know, support payments or whatnot, charitable giving didn't take the kind of hit we're seeing it take this year, according to the survey. And that would suggest that there just isn't money there. So if you take this all up, you know this industry really well. If you add this all together, Marty, what what's going on? Are we, you know, uh, clearly retailers have had a tough couple of years. What does this look like in terms of a holiday season? This clearly isn't what they were hoping for uh, under the tree this year. Yeah, I think in the short term, there's definitely some concern. There's headwinds. There are still uh, there's still a lot that can happen in the next 60 or 90 days to either take us in a in a better direction or unfortunately in a more challenging direction. And that will depend on what happens with interest rates. That will happen. That will depend on what happens with the geopolitical situation happening, uh, you know, around us. And so, in the short term, I would say, you know, a lot of cautiousness and some anxiety. But I think longer term, as we get through holiday, we get into, into 2023, my hope is that some of the inflation uh, continues to come down, things continue to settle a little bit um, in terms of anxiety levels, and some of this sort of negativity starts to sort of wane away. But again, as we've been trained, unfortunately, the last couple of years, expect the unexpected. Marty Weintraub, thank you so much. 
My pleasure. Thank you. 